0: You're listening to
1: Arsenal Pass, a flesh and blood podcast for players by players and all about strategy, leveling up and the latest news in the world of Wraith. Welcome to Arsenal Pass.
0: Welcome back, everyone, to episode 105 of Arsenal Pass. This week, we get into a preview of sorts for Pro Tour Baltimore with testing in full swing for prospective players and teams heading into Baltimore for the calling in the Pro Tour. It's getting crunch time when it comes to picking a deck, locking in plans, and making that ultimate call. What 80 cards will you and your team bring to the Pro Tour on April 28th? We're going to go behind the scenes of how pro players make those decisions and exactly what we've been doing in our testing and what deck we would take to the Pro Tour. Spoiler alert, by the way, we're both kind of not going I'll be casting and Hayden unfortunately can't make it because of work but still we are testing as if we would be playing and we're gonna bring you all into that process to help you understand how we pick a deck anyway Hayden let's talk about the news
1: yeah well I can start with my week in flesh and blood if you like but it's been pretty it's been a bit, it's been a bit about quiet that, actually how do I yeah, I just
0: I usually don't read long-winded intros, so I was like I totally blanked on the week in
1: flesh and blood yeah yeah we're sw- swapping it up swapping it up this week um well I'm, I'm in New Zealand at the moment Hence, uh, if you're watching the video, you won't see my face. you just hear my, what do I say, buttery, maybe... Um, Gums sort of slapping. I <laughs> uh, played a bit of Flesh and Blood this week. Actually, I played a Skirmish on the weekend, which is really cool. Skirmish season is is fully underway. So um, back home in my my hometown of Christchurch, I ended up playing... Oh, you'll you really enjoy the sprinting, actually. Mm. I did play a Skirmish. I played Olympus Skirmish, played Sealed, top eight draft, and you'll never guess... So I made it all the way to the final. You'll never guess who I played in the final. Not like a data doll. No, no, it because it was it was it was it was draft and it was limited. I oh. did hear about that though. I played none other than first the the very first calling winner, Isaac.
0: Man, he's and got my, a yeah. he's got a kryptonite. If any player's got a kryptonite, it's Isaac Olsen. Round one, on kryptonite. stream,
1: he's out. Well, he beat me in the final to take out the skirmish. So it turns out Isaac still got it. We played a a ninja mirror in the finals. I was on Benji. He was on Katsu, and. The man took me down. So I think that's is the the first event he's won since the calling in 2019. (laughs) Congrats to Isaac. (laughs) Nah, I mean, Isaac Isaac doesn't play very much anymore. He's, uh, I'd say, semi-retired. He was at Worlds last year. Uh, A lot lot of things changed in his life. But he showed up to Skirmish and and, uh, we had a good game. So it was like, like these good old days. He's on Katsu, so I think he felt very at home. Just
0: like Welcome to Wraith. Well, uh, Welcome to Wraith, He brought Reiner. And uh, I think I think Sasha beat him with more life than he started with in that calling. Shout out to Isaac. Sorry for listening to this.
1: Don't mean to roast you. <laughs> <laughs> that was the first construct calling. I think, I think yeah, I remember that. It was yeah, the round one feature match. And then he got it again at the calling. in uh, The, blitz, the calling. blitz calling. Yep, we got yeah. to
0: commentate it. I was so excited when that round one pairing came up. I was like, ooh, here we go.
1: <laughs> I think he still I think he still hates us for that I think he did I want to say he won the first ever limited calling with Katsu though in the top 8 or was it Reiner?
0: Um I think Sasha was on Rainer, so that I do think that he might have been on Katsu it could have yeah, been on Bravo yeah. I think Katsu actually might have won zero tournaments
1: yeah I think you're right I think he was on Bravo yeah mm-hmm. anyway I digress so played skirmish this past weekend played a little bit of Class Constructed another draft the other week uh, trying to, trying to, still trying to get as many drafts in as I, I can really still loving this limited format obviously got to drafts on the weekend as well after Benji as I said played Azuri, a pretty mid-Azuri deck in the SEAL but it had all the tools it sort of needed to, to get the job done uh and yeah just been toiling away playing some classic constructed, which we are going to talk about in, in, in the pod anyway
0: yeah i've been it's playing uh some more tabletop to be honest um it, i just have a couple of boxes outside least, sitting on my kitchen table but i am waiting for hayden to get back from new zealand so we can start playing some class more class constructed start actually figuring out what deck i would have brought and why it's kano <laughs> um, i'm excited to get into to get into the cc
1: testing with you it ain't Kano. I'll tell you what, well, we're going to talk about it a lot more, but uh, it ain't Kano. <laughs> it ain't Kano. Sorry. Sorry, team. So no, we, it never so is Kano until gosh. the
0: last minute. That's it. That's how...
1: <laughs> it's never Kano until it's Kano.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Anyway, the news. The news. Good call. Uh, well, you know, I've been leading the news for the past three weeks with this one particular topic, which relates to Proto Baltimore, impact distribution. So if you aren't familiar with this topic, it's <laughs> for some reason, either you're not on Twitter or you haven't heard the last couple of, podcasts or you haven't uh, heard limited time only pack distribution There's some variation between the belgian print runs and the japanese print runs and it was kind of a, a point of what will happen at the pt what are we going to see what packs are going to be used and alice did make a statement uh which was just three days ago if you've seen already released mm. just called baltimore draft where they do say that uh with baltimore featuring outsiders draft we, they have a solution involving a unique booster mix for the Pro Tour, which they believe ensures best fairness for all competitors. Uh, they're not sharing further details on this issue at the time. They do admit it's an issue, though, which I think is at least a could start. And they say, we strongly encourage players to focus on fundamentals of the draft format and enjoying great games of flesh and blood. So that is what has been said about that. We It's not Japanese. It's not Belgian. Well, I mean, it could be, but apparently it's a unique mix of both. What that means, Who knows? Uh, so I, I guess that's the information we're gonna get hitting into into the pro tour for draft Brandon.
0: hey at least i acknowledged it um yeah i mean fab twitter nowadays reminds me of like a lukewarm bath that you've been sitting in for just a little bit too long you're like damn this sucks <laughs> but yeah <laughs> this uh yeah this this obviously it's kind of weird for sure but there had there there was a solution was needed the the pack uh distribution sort of Difference across regions is not okay going into the Pro Tour, so this is a solution. I would say in terms of solutions, uh, it did feel like we were a little bit behind the Iron Curtain on this one post-announcement, and the tone was mm. a bit... Um, uh, what, to the point? <laughs> I do <don't
1: know. laughs> I, I, I would say, I, I would use the word condescending, but so I want to I get this out there and, and say no more about it because it, ultimately it is what it is. It's going to happen. Um, but there's been a lot of discourse on Twitter and I, I posted and, and said, you know, here's the announcement. My feeling was maybe not, not correct, not a great announcement. And got a lot of replies and, and I would say there's a real split between players' reaction to this. There's definitely some players who are saying, yeah, this is great. It's a challenge for the Pro Tour. Unknown, pack distributions people saying don't focus on pack distributions focus on the fundamentals which i completely understand all very good calls i think the point is being missed by both sides who are both a bit upset about this and think this is a good thing which is that it is information like the pack distribution is information accessible to players because lss have put that on their product sheet you know they've put the cards expected breakdown on their product sheet and um players are opening packs and it's something that can give you information and when you're going into a limited format, take the information you can get because it, it helps you. It will help you. So I think that is the the point that's being missed a little bit. Uh, that, that being said, I mean, it, it kind of is what it is. I think what kind of, and a, a few had few players have said this, I think the thing that kind of got people's goat a little bit was the tone of the announcement, like Brendan said. Um, they actually edited the announcement. I don't know if you caught this, Brendan. Oh, I did not. Edited. Damn it. That, <laughs> that's my thing. Alice has actually edited the end of the announcement uh, where they said, you know, they were like, oh, people stop pissing, uh, stop sending pesky emails or stop uh, probing us about because you'll find out no more. And the tone, unfortunately, I think just came off a little bit of a condescending. I think maybe they should have just got a third person to maybe scan that, that release before they put it out. Ultimately, if they feel it's the right decision for the game and to not allow players to have the section of information because they think it's going to disadvantage one region of players because of what the pack distribution is going to end up being, or players because they can't practice with those pack distributions, then not, I get that. That's the call they're going to make. Um, I just wish that maybe they'd been a little bit more clear with that and done it a bit sooner, uh, because they obviously knew about this this issue for a long time. Uh, it's, it's been addressed in other forums. So, ultimately, yeah, we're going to get this, this combination of packs. Uh, do I think it's a good thing? I mean, it could be. I think, you know, having... I, I will say that this idea that Players are now on a level playing field. I don't think it's true. Uh, I think one That's of the <laughs> one of the glaring I think holes of that is that you're going to get into the second draft at the Pro Tour and players that have teams, players that are, have you know well known and connected, are going to have a bunch of information to work off for that second draft because they're going to know what was in the first draft. and They're going to ask people, they're going to find out from their teams, etc. What was the the sort of the closer approximation of the pack collation and, and have more information. Now, ultimately, that, that is. Small piece of information, but it is you know. I would say it's not necessarily putting people on the same yeah. level playing field. It's and not also, more this the last fair. Thing I, I think
0: that's such a weak. This is a weak. Uh, yeah, it's, it's such a, a I weak. I bad argument.
1: Yeah, I will say the last thing I think is that I believe, and I think a lot of players believe this: understanding pack distribution and using pack distribution is a fundamental of draft. I think reading signals and and sending signals is a fundamental of draft. And when there's information that allows you to use your fundamentals to their their highest degree and to um, get the most out of it. I, I think that's that's part of draft. So I do think it was a s- sort of just brushed off a little bit that that's not a fundamental of, of draft. I wish they would just acknowledge that that is a fundamental of draft. But hey, look, due to sort of circumstances, maybe outside of Alice's oh, direct control, it, it won't be what you'd expect. And that, that's fine. I mean, ultimately, it's not that big an issue. I don't think it needs to be blown out of proportion that much. But um,
0: yeah, so the way I look at this is if you're a player heading into the pro tour, um, you simply just adapt to the, the rules that have been set, right? So if pack distribution is known and if the information is given to players, you have the opportunity to use that to your advantage or not. But a lot of people would argue this advantage. And if you don't, it's just, it's totally on you and it's it's your choice. You're just adapting to the rule set. If they move away from pack distribution being known and they say that it's going to be a mix, same thing as a player going into the pro tour, simply you just adapt, you incorporate it into your strategy as much as possible and you do what you need to do. Um, The only thing that I would want them to do differently, I, you know, I, I, Obviously I'm casting, so there's a bit of a bias, but I don't care if it's if it's the distribution that's usually known that we're that we're used to from the boxes that's printed, like you said, on the product sheet, or if it's this sort of mix and match of cards that they've decided to go with in order to sort of create the packs. Doesn't matter. I would have just liked them to present as much information as possible, acknowledge it was a problem, say here are the here is the new preset, here is the new rule set for the Pro Tour. You have X amount of time adapt, and that's just competition to me. Like, so I think it's I think it's totally fine. Again, the only issue I had with it is like it was really just the tone. Um, but ultimately, whether the the correlation and just uh, of the packs comes from the experience we're used to, where it's printed on the product sheet, or it's this mix and match as a player, you know the information beforehand. You have the option to adapt or to not. It's totally on you.
1: Yeah, yeah, to, to a degree, like players are going to be on the same playing field right which which is true i don't want to just completely dismiss that players are going to rock up to the pro tour and have there or thereabouts the same level of information and we saw this impact actually happen at Lille. i'm sure i'm not sure if you remember this brendan but the pack distribution for Lille for draft one was not great so the the collation of packs did not approximate what we'd seen from packs in 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 a booster box so there was like there was um booster boxes or i guess draft tables that had like four of equipment, zero of equipment, like Mm -hmm. two dragons, 12 dragons, you know, there was just like this massive skew uh, because they had not used, I guess, box distributions, which is fine. I think that's, that's an okay thing to have. I think like you're saying, it's just about giving players the information so they Mm -hmm. can be ready to adapt to these things. Um, And, I mean, saying we have a solution between the two. Maybe that is just enough information, but also, you know, maybe, maybe it could be a bit more. Anyway, that's the decision that, that Alice has made, and I think it's um, regardless. The straw format is fantastic, so I think the spectacle we're going to have and the the challenge that players are going to have for this upcoming pro tour is going to be fantastic. Because ultimately, you're still going to like, like, like they do say correctly as well focus on the fundamentals of the draft find out the archetypes you want to be in, in this format find out what is what cards good what cards aren't and how you should play your game plans. well
0: hey i'll tell you we uh we're talking we're going to talk about how to pick, pick a classic constructed deck for the pro tour on this podcast but i think we can just skip that and say you can walk up with any deck you want to any pile of cards just focus on the fundamentals forehead and you'll win <laughs> just like obviously there's there's nuance and there's depth to everything and that's why we have a podcast today but uh I, that's that's my favorite part is like just focus on the fundamentals like dude there's nuance to that
1: <laughs> for sure there was a week anyway <laughs> we can move on enough said about that uh, next up the gold standard i mean it's collector's week for lss on fabtc.com mm. and with that is a a few articles coming out a few clarifications a few things just celebrating collectors in the in the community of flesh and blood and uh one really interesting thing if you haven't seen it already is this announcement of what's called the gold standard or at least the name of the article that LSS has published. has uh up on the 10th of april which talks about gold foil prize cards and uh, how they are a special part of fab collectability basically i guess the long and short of it so when we talk about gold cards we're talking about the gold legendaries that are handed out at um certain tier level events so callings nationals pro tours etc and also the rare majestic and common which is at ProQuest Mm -hmm. and other potential selected programs as well so basically what they're saying now is that uh, there is an inventory baseline of which when they get to releasing that many so as, as once they hit that number being given out at events that will be it they will they will destroy the rest and the excess copies will you know no, no longer exist so and they've given some benchmarks for this so the extended out legendaries is 25 um although there's there's 50 tunics but for going forward there'll only be 25 of that that, uh, that level of card. Mm-hmm. Legendary is 40, Majestic 60, Rare is 80, and Common is, is 100. So as soon as those are given out, this includes wow. ones that will be sealed because obviously LSS know the ones that are going to be given out. So once they say, you know, okay, we've given out 80 Snapdragon Scalers in Gold Foil, uh, and 81st will not be given out, the rest will be destroyed. You know, we've given out 40 Crown of Seeds in Gold Foil, the, the 41st will not be given out. So yeah, I think, it's, I think this is already kind of somewhat known that they weren't going to commit to reprint but there was always that option and yeah. now they've
0: said okay, you say that but like man it was definitely in the back of my mind as i held on to some of my gold foils and i wondered how special <laughs> they were going to be in perpetuity like i think there was a lot of the theories in the in the community it was like hey the welcome to wraith gold foils are really the ones that you might want to go for because if they're going to stop printing any of them they might stop printing those first this was like the bro science of gold foils yeah, but yeah. yeah and so this is actually really cool to hear as a competitor because i think that one of the things that makes flesh and blood competitive play so special is the the promo cards like we do see promo cards uh, across a few tcgs right now used as players compensation um and you know a form of it obviously as a way to compete at these high level events and i think that you know actually monitoring these values and treating it with integrity by presenting the numbers it it like it adds a lot of player confidence in competing for them and using them as a way to sort of like either fund um you know their Their sort of Travel journey and, as yeah, their the yeah. journey as a professional player, or to maybe hold on and collect and to know how special they are. So I th- I think it's huge. Like I think this is really really good if you're a pro player in Flesh and Blood.
1: This announcement, I think it's I think it's both. I think it's great for competitive players because they know that these is going to continue to hold at least some value. You know, we're not going to see these com- these commons rares, these legendaries. It's like oh man, there's been so many of X mm-hmm. legendary opened. My mine's worth so much less because there is there is a finite amount and that is really cool that i think alice has stood up and said that so both for the collectors of course when they talk about the collectability of these cards we now they now have numbers firm numbers and i think competitive players like you say have some semblance of the value of a potential win at an event um and they don't uh, i guess Jubile, which is the upcoming rose nationals uh, mm. winning foil is that is that gold foil? Um, I don't that's know. That's one I guess. That I guess I always looked at, at it as a to...
0: as a coaster for like a, a cold drink. You know. uh Oh uh oh! Someone doesn't.
1: Someone doesn't. <laughs> someone doesn't like spell void. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah. Anyway, uh, collectors week on oh, on Fabtasty Interested to see what else they talk about when it comes to sort of collectors in the community, but also you know, amazing that they they are representing and um, acknowledging them. Skirmish season six, as you said, is underway. I played one on the weekend. A Data Doll won a skirmish, Brendan. I know you alluded to it before, but there was a blitz skirmish. I don't know any details other than I just saw that someone had tweeted about it and tweeted the list. A A Data Doll had won a skirmish. So congrats to that player. Great, great result. It's wild time,
0: flesh and blood. Azalea taking down battle hardens. Dada Doll taking down skirmishes. It's like up to, uh, upside down world nowadays. I feel like a
1: little bit, A little bit. <laughs> so two more weeks of of uh, skirmishes are you hitting out to me i'm going to play one on the very last weekend i'm going to play blitz skirmish so that's the yeah that's the last weekend are you planning to play anything brendan i don't will think so i
0: don't i don't think that i will be playing skirmishes i mean it depends like i think that if they <clears throat> somehow rekindle what was awesome about Skirmishes in the past, which I think it was because they were the highest competitive events at one point, um, I'll go back. But yeah, right now Skirmishes is about as intriguing to me as like a normal armory night. And I'd probably prefer to go on the weekdays, which is when my armories happen. So yeah, my weekends are pretty tight nowadays because of, uh, because of the running and then also because of some uh, other recording time. So yeah, probably not for me. And I wonder, I wonder Hayden, if they're all actually sold out anyway beforehand.
1: Potentially, potentially. I was really impressed with our skirmish on the weekend. Uh, I'm glad they brought <laughs> back limited skirmishes. Yeah. And, for sure. Alongside Blitz, which is which is I think returning a little bit of that feeling. And I think is a really great way for newer players to get into the game. I know there's there's a couple of newer players playing on the weekend. Um I'd heard that this coming weekend back in Sydney, you know, where I usually reside, there is a, a limited skirmish happening and there's there's definitely a lot of newer players looking to shout out for that. So yeah, it's I mean, I'm glad that we have these skirmish seasons. I'm looking forward to at least playing... Wow. I'm going to play one Blitz. I don't know how much I'm looking forward to it. Mm-hmm. I haven't played Blitz since that infamous camera game at Worlds where I got destroyed, Brendan. So, yeah, doing <laughs> my return to Blitz after six months. That was my favorite match uh, in history, actually. All right, it? all right, all right. <laughs> anyway, moving on. Uh, <laughs> the of time only. Episode four has just gone up with uh, Chu Hing of Singapore. I think this is one of my favorite guests. I've had the pleasure to interview Brendan... Chu Hang is one of the, I just, I think one of the best players in the world. I've had the privilege to watch him play at multiple events, including Lille and Worlds. I had the pleasure to actually finally meet him at Worlds and have a conversation and then ask him, you know, I'd love to get you on something in the future plays a lot of limited as well really big limited fan has done a lot of drafts for outsiders so it's a perfect opportunity we talk about assess and all things you need to know about drafting assess and how to set yourself up to draft assess and win with assassin and and outsiders so um yeah i hope people enjoy that and uh really to hear what someone that i think doesn't get you know necessarily the the, the spotlight they deserve uh top aider from san jose calling um nationals top eighter unfortunately Hing was the player who yeah, the infamous title of missing winning ins for both Singapore and uh Leo on back to back weekends, mm-hmm. but <laughs> very, very good player.
0: Awesome! <clears throat> well, let's head into that command Cook cookout. I know you're in New Zealand, so nice, uh, nice change of cuisine from Australia. Is that is that true? Is, is it any different
1: where you are right now than it is maybe back home? <laughs> uh, it's a bit more regional, I'd say, where I am right now. Okay, it's, that's okay. that's one way to put it. It's no shrimpies it's really on the Barbies. Weather. No. <laughs> well, it's not really barbecue. With I'll be honest with you. That's not really more of it. Yeah, it's definitely not. Let's see, foodie here. Mm-hmm. Weirdly, um, anyway, yeah. I have a question this week, Brendan, but it comes from a one, Hayden Dale, and say personal question on the Commander Cookout this week. If you do want to get your questions on the Commander Cookout, please do. We've got some open spots. So uh, if you want to get your question in, you can either pop it down in the YouTube comments below, as someone did last week with a great question, which will be on the pod next week. Uh, Or you can head over to the Discord if you're on the Arsenal Pass Discord, if you're a Patreon. Or you can also email them to us at arsenalpassfab at gmail.com, DMs on Twitter, whatever you'd like to do. But Brendan, this is a question Mm -hmm. from one Hayden Dale to you, Mr. Brendan Patrick, which is, what heroes do you think create the most exciting potential or the most potential for excitement for coverage when it comes to pro to a Baltimore?
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, I think I could start off with answering the inverse, which is what is the least exciting, which is probably any sort of old and fatigue list. Uh, unfortunately, they can be a bit of a, they can be a bit of a slog on coverage. And I think that while as a caster, I can often appreciate how technical those games can get because they really can. I think as a viewer, you're more likely to kind of come in or, or kind of come out and then come back in. And it's really hard to follow those games. If you're not following literally everything that's happening because often it is a long game of attrition. So, those are not my favorite. My favorite games. Uh, my personal favorites are heroes that we don't tend to see, which you know the prime example being something like a wizard. And maybe not last uh, at the world championship where Icelander was very prominent. But seeing something like a Kano is very exciting for me because I do have a fondness for my heart. But I think going into Pro Tour Baltimore, one of the most exciting decks is the Azalea deck. Right, this is a deck that has basically existed at the DNF tier <laughs> up until now. It has had some niche play against a aggro focused meta, but right now it looks to be. You it's a top dog, and I think that it's it could still be a bit of a dark horse. I know it's had a lot of success recently, but you know, it's a deck that you would not have predicted was going to show up to Pro Tour Baltimore before Outsiders release. So, I think people will be very excited to see Ranger and to see what it can do in a high level professional setting. And that's what I'm particularly most excited for. Uh, on the if we were to like zoom out, like what is the most exciting to watch? I think that commentating things like aggressive mirrors can be pretty fun because it is mm-hmm. very much back and forth uh but in for me personally i really enjoy i enjoyed a lot of the icelander games enjoyed a lot of the sort of mid-range tempo based gameplay and i like the icelander a lot because the and usually <clears throat> when icelander plays the the board stake does kind of swing back and forth because icelander is at least manipulating their life total to turn on those things like the wounded bowls and to you know, the life total is very much a resource in that deck. So it does make for exciting coverage, which I like. You have another question here, which I'm just going to read off. Yeah, for I've,
1: I've, well, I've, I've, d- got, I've got, I'm going to got a couple of follow-up questions mm-hmm. for this, actually. So this is something we can't usually in the to cook out. But, you know, since the, the questionnaire, the person asking the question is right here next to you, Brendan, you know, not physically, obviously, but, you know, anyway, I'm here. Mm-hmm. A couple of follow-up questions. If you could, you know, you're on round one for feature, mm-hmm. yourself and the infamous Matt DeMarco Flake, mm-hmm. and you get to put, two heroes together to play, like what, what are the two that you just immediately like, I want to see this round one. I think it's going to be the best way to kick off pro tour Baltimore. It sounds like maybe, you know, maybe Azalea's one because it just could be the current storyline is Azalea, but what, you know, what might it be?
0: That's pretty tough one,
1: Hayden. Um, like,
0: uh, it, it, it does kind. Of, this is kind of a funky way of answering the question because it's not direct. But when it when it comes to round one pairings, honestly, the mo- the thing that I'm most excited to see is more player based pairings than matchup based pairings. Because I think it's really exciting to kind of come out of the gate with you know players that were successful in the past tournaments. You know, something like a world championship, put them on round one, and then if you know when you're putting two stellar players together at a premier event like Pro Tour Baltimore that have been successful in the past. You know, it's round one. One of them is going to lose. It's a high stakes match right out of the gate. And I think it makes things very, very exciting. For heroes, you know, obviously it's very meta dependent. It depends on what those decks like Because ultim decks can be very exciting. There's those sort of like, you know, two for eight ultim decks, the tempo decks that are very fun to watch. But then there's also the polar opposite of that, which is more of a fatigue based, um, I would like to get something like an Azalea on round one. I think that's going to be a narrative at the pro tour. I think that Azalea is going to be a narrative. So it's good to start out round one with that narrative and build it throughout the tournament as you progress through the day and see more and more or less and less as we go further into the tournament. And then, you know, I'd probably look for an Azalea. If, you know, player agnostic, I'd probably look for an Azalea versus Icelander. We take the world championship um, winning deck and we put it up against this new dark horse, the new kid on the block, which is the Azalea deck.
1: Mm, don't know how much of a dark horse to say there is at the moment, but <laughs> yes, I, I agree. What about, what? What? my second part of this question, as Brendan said, what do you think the storylines might be for Pro Tour Baltimore?
0: Yeah, I think the easiest one um, to sort of go to first is the world championship, or the world champion defending um, his title at Pro Tour Baltimore. You know, it's always going to be a thing is whoever won the last tournament... Uh, you know, they're sort of favored and they they have a spotlight on them for the next one. So Michael Hamilton, obviously coming off of a, a lot of recent success, is an exciting player to watch. I think in, outside of that, outside of specific players, I really like the regional-based storylines. Like, yeah. um, you know, not not really Europe versus North America or Europe versus the United States. I like more like the Polish team and, um, you know, like Hong Spain, Kong. Hong Kong, Singapore, like these sort of smaller regions. I know that... Some of them are countries, and we're talking about, or continents. But you know these smaller like areas where there's a group of players that's very tight knit that has worked hard together to sort of bring their collective up, and we see them sort of reap the rewards of that. I think that's really cool, and I think we've we've seen this as well in some of the past premier events. Maybe less so in World Championship, but the first the first two Pro Tours were dominated by Europe, right? You know, we came off of the back of it looking like, you know, North America was kind of a um. A, a big favorite in a lot of those tournaments, and I think that there was a huge upset as Europe came and showed their their dominance in flesh and blood.
1: Yeah, I'm really excited to see the kind of continuing growth of Asian representation at these events in terms of the where the player base is, is hailing from. And you know, I'm really looking out for Hong Kong this time. I think if I think about storylines for this this pro tour, I think you've kind of nailed a bunch of them. I think there's there's going to be more that develop, and I really hope that. You know, I know you've, you kind of will have a part of coverage not necessarily, that you're uh, involved with, I guess, the, the behind the scenes of planning of how it's going to be executed. But, you know, this these storylines, I really hope that they do start to get explored and evolved a bit more because uh, I do think, you know, there's a lot more happening there than maybe we we had at World Championships. I mean, Chris A. for instance, is someone who yep. you know, played in the finals of the World Championships and is a really fascinating person and player and has been sort of seen around... The North American circuit as well Yeah, he's going to come back to try and do one better. For instance, you know, that's another story.
0: We also had players, like I believe their name is Foud, uh, who top eight on Jermai. Like that's that's one that happened that kind of, I, I don't know, like, I don't know if it gets forgotten about or it's like, it's just not the forefront of my mind. But that is like, that was one of the only Jermais that was up there and makes it the top eight and has some pretty amazing games on camera. Like if Foud brings that deck again then it'd be particularly interesting to see. But yeah, I think that there's... You You did mention that you didn't know how much um, sort of I or we as the coverage team have uh, sort of a hand in weaving those storylines. Well, actually, pretty much all of the matches you see on camera, both the matches at the feature match and in the secondary feature match, are actually chosen by the coverage team. They're not chosen by another person that's behind the scenes in production. It's usually us that are up there. So we do we usually do a lot of sort of the storyline weaving. Obviously, it's it's very heavily biased towards like the higher ranked players currently in the tournament, but, you know, going down like an X1 or an X2 late in the tournament and seeing two sort of prominent players from either past tournaments or, you know, whatever it may be, we will actively kind of search those out. And hero-based as well. You know, we do like to get a bit of hero diversity <laughs> on, the, on the cover yeah. table, at least in day one. I know, so in day one, um, deck diversity is going to Take precedent over sort of like player renown. We're names in, and, yeah. exactly. So we're in day two. We kind of move away from that. And we start to follow the top players because they're the ones that are making
1: their runs up to top eight, and they're the ones we're going to follow all the way to the finals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's more and more interesting names to to keep a track of and um, and follow and and have on coverage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a great command and cookout question there. What a question. Thank <laughs> you Ed, for that question. If you want to get your questions in, arsenalpassfab.gmail.com, the drop them in the YouTube comments below, Discord or Twitter. All right, Brendan, where are we going?
0: So let's talk about picking a, I mean, speaking of the prototype, let's talk about picking a deck for go to our Baltimore, the process that we would go through, what we think the meta currently looks like and sort of what our personal testing process looks like. I know that me and you have lagged a bit in terms of like, you know, we're not three months out, you know, testing as hardcore as we would be if we were playing, but we are s- sort of ramping up our testing process. So let's just go through what we would, um, the process we normally would in order to, to pick a deck that is of course not Kano. <laughs> yeah, so,
1: I mean, go ahead. I was just gonna say, I mean, this is kind of a, uh, Uh, shout out to uh, a friend Tom who plays locally with us who drafts with us I said what should we pot about this week and he said I'd really love to see like a peek behind the curtain of how teams and players approach this idea of of getting ready for the Pro Tour what it looks like and what we expect and what we think is going to happen in this process for Pro Tour Baltimore and ultimately you know what is going to be the outcome because yeah, you you should say you know preparation maybe has looked a little bit different this time. But you know, I've been going through this process myself of what would I play. I've been trying to say, okay, by the end of this week, what deck would I be looking to lock in? Um, so there, there is a there is a process here.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like let's just let's talk about the testing phase because and. I'm gonna take you all fully behind the curtain here because I think our testing process is a little bit atypical in terms of how you usually how disciplined it is how data focused it is I'm not saying that for like an ego thing because ultimately we end up not following that data we get a little we get a little kooky in there a little mad scientist but um, I just want you all to fully understand what our process looks like so we do, we, we start out with like some really high level conversations of where we think the meta is, where we think the matchup spread is. And then from there, um, based on like what heroes might have the sort of highest win rate across other heroes that we think we will sort of use the the data, whether it's from a tier list or some sort of like, you know, you're matching like tables on Excel, to figure out what heroes we think are priority to test because ultimately, Because there's so many cards in Flesh and Blood now and there's so many heroes, your testing process is not going to be 100% perfect. You have to prioritize things. And some things you're going to have to just throw out because they're not worth your time. So that's usually where we start is high level. What are we looking at in terms of the meta? Then we do have a sort of global or group-based Excel sheet where we all have access to and we record all of our matchup data. And the matchup data literally looks like hero one, hero two, maybe like a deck description in terms of like the archetype kind of goes in the hero name, win, loss, and then notes. And then from there we will use, I don't know if it's called a pivot table. Basically we will aggregate that data via an Excel formula to pull out win rates and to also sometimes we pull out like keywords that will appear in the notes. So things like punt, was a funny one. We used to have like a punt counter. So like a way to track, like how many times that may have came up in a notes. And if we, you know, like, was that match just kind of like, was it a player mistake, et cetera? A little bit less so, but that's, we we really strict, we really stick to our data. And I think that that's one thing that maybe differentiates us is that we try to keep all of us accountable to be entering that data every single time. Cause it's really easy not to do it. And it's, everybody hates it. It's not fun. (laughs) It's the worst part by far, but it's probably some of the most important um, resources we have in terms of determining a deck. Hayden, why don't you talk to me a little bit about the phases, right? So we start off with the uh, the discovery phase and then we progress through that and we become more uh, structured and we make a balanced and reasonable decision at the end.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to dwell on, we've talked a lot about testing process in the past and and what that looks like as Brennan kind of top line covered, but I think a lot of teams are doing this and I think it looks very similar to, to probably this part at least anyway, uh, which is going through the process of understanding how to narrow things down, how to find out how you can potentially attack. There's basically two things you got to find out, I think, when you go to a large event like this. And this is what I think teams and individuals are trying to work out. First of all is what do they expect the meta to look like? And the second part is, what is the correct deck to play in that meta? They're just very, two very simple questions, but they obviously lead to much bigger processes. So I think when it comes to answering both those questions in totality, so what's the meta going to look like and then what is a, a, the correct deck to take into that meta for whatever reason it might be, uh, you go through a few things, which is like, I'd say the first is like the discovery phase. The discovery phase is just gathering information. Just finding out what the lay of the land looks like. What are the powerful things happening in this format? And I think the main thing that players... Right now, for this proto, and it looks different, I think, for each proto because mm. there's different sort of um constraints, there's different things happening, there's different pieces, moving pieces. So, for let's say PT1, Everfest was a, a set that had been out for a while. The format was a bit more solved, there was top decks, there was targets on backs, right? Whereas for, so they were more, it was more about iteration when it came to the discovery phase. What are the things out there that we know are already happening? Whereas for this one, it's more about, okay, we've got a brand new set. What are the power players? What are the shifts that have happened from the last format? That's the discovery phase. You know, what are the cards that are worth exploring? What are the deck archetypes that are worth exploring? What are the heroes' classes worth exploring? So um, we'll talk more about like the, the actual what this is for this format, but I just want to kind of top people go through these phases. Uh, information gathering phase, really important. I think Brendan already talked about that. do we know from events again very different Mm -hmm. for this pro tour because the only kind of events we have is some some regional events uh things like chicago brawl um some events that have happened in in asia and europe smaller events so it's a bit harder to gather the information and and necessarily use it uh the metagame analysis would come next and selection narrowing so okay now we understand we've done our research and discovery we know what's powerful we know what is being played out there to an extent we've got a little bit of information we can go off and this is going to vary again depending on what what the i guess the the sort of constraints of the, the tournament look like, the timing. Uh, so what does the game actually look like? Breaking it down a little bit. Starting to narrow. Okay, we had XYZ on our list. Now we have to take off why? Because it just doesn't play potentially well into what we understand as the meta game analysis. Mm-hmm. Deck selection comes next. Now we're really narrowing it down. We understand the meta. We understand our opportunities and the, the decks that could exploit it. So we've, we've, we've answered the question about what the meta looks like. We're now halfway down answering the question of what's the right deck, and now we're actually locking in the deck that's going to best play into that meta. And that is that is really the process. After that comes a lot more testing and and refining. You know, So last-minute audibles probably fall into here, but 80-card deck selection and building cyber plans and game plans for the meta at hand.
0: Yeah, and I, I think that that will give you the foundation you need to at least sort of pick the deck that you'll be playing. I think that the refinement process after that is almost equally as important, right? Because even if you've picked the correct hero, I think that the correct AD cards and especially the sort of pre and sideboard cards are are incredibly important to being successful in that meta. We talk about the equipment you're bringing, sort of some of the silver bullet cards. When you when you're going to a, a a high level event like a pro tour or like worlds it should it generally is true that you're not going to have all the slots that you want to put every single card you could in the deck right mm-hmm. you're going to have to trade off between um you know just like what you think is the correct call for the meta like and i think this is why you see a lot of decks you know opt to cut things like arcane barrier at some of these tournaments well, especially things like over one right where you would only play it against like one of the heroes it's maybe very underrepresented, you you will likely face that choice, and not only with Arcane Barrier, but also with your anti-aggro cards, maybe your mirror cards, maybe your anti-fatigue cards, etc. So that, I think metagaming is probably the most important part of actually picking a deck, assuming that you're the kind of player that is does feel like they're flexible to play sort of any deck um, in the current pool. There are a lot of players that you know, are specialists. And at this point in Flesh and Blood, I think that, I think there was a point. I think there was a point in the game when it was objectively better to be flexible across every single hero because there was like four, eight of them. But because there's so many now, I think that you see specialists having almost as much success as the people that are, you know, willing to play whatever they think the quote unquote deck
1: is. Yeah, there's a couple of ways to go about it. And this is part of that discovery phase is, Are the decks that are in my warehouse still powerful options or do I need to really go out and and find, learn a new hero? The other thing as well is that players can still be really rewarded by Early identifying early identification of what is powerful in this format. So, what cards look really powerful? What archetypes to look really powerful? You know, maybe hey, maybe Azuri looks like something that is, is more powerful than maybe the face value. I'm going to d- dig into that. I'm going to spend time with it. I'm going to try and make it happen. And if not, I'm going to move back to my 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 tried and tested. You know, maybe an to play. I'm going to go back there. So there's always that kind of sort of opportunity during the discovery phase. I will say, I think one of the things that this, and I think whether teams, individuals know they're doing this i think this is mostly what people are going through and that metagame analysis like you say is so important because you might have you know might decide that ultim is the correct deck to play for this event mm-hmm. but what 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 does your ultim deck look like and also what cards can you play you know i think peace of mind is a a really interesting card i think that card is really powerful but if you're expecting a lot of arcane damage and you're expecting a lot of small go wide is that the kind of card you want to deck? is that the card that's going to get value or is that going to be a card that punishes you so that final 80 card decision is really important but all of this kind of these phases this kind of this journey that that players will go through on the way to the Pro Tour, whether they be as a team, environment, or individuals, it's going to give them a base to work from. It's going to give them the meta they need to target. And then what's going to happen in between is is that's kind of the unknown. That's the, the part you have to factor for. Because ultimately, if everyone's doing this, then you... What's the next step ahead? Because the meta's is going to iterate, right? Like if you and you've experienced this, this Brendan, we can talk oh, yeah. this a little bit. <laughs> if you're in a group and you know you kind of go through this process, and all of a sudden it's like, okay, these are the decks, and then people start to move beyond that, and iterate, they find things that target and beat what the perceived top deck is. It's like here's an example. Okay, so say you're preparing right now. Ultim, I think looks really good. You find the Ultim is still really solid. It's a great option. Or Azalea. Azalea, look, we just we're not really finding a deck that is stronger linear-wise than Azalea. Mm-hmm. We think it's best deck. And then all of a sudden you start to go, okay, well, now our our, our testing devolves to like targeting it to find out what beats it so that we're prepared for, you know, what people might bring to try and beat us if we're going to play Azalea. And then you find something else. You're like, oh, well, actually there's this this particular plan that beats Azalea, this particular kind of configuration. Could that now be an option that's on the table? So even within groups and players testing, things are going to iterate between now and the Pro Tour, which is, you know, two weeks away. So it moves fast, I would say, and things will pop out, which we're, we're going to talk about as well. People will find things that are maybe a little bit atypical. like Brinsfield. Yeah.
0: And I think that just one little caveat is you have to be careful when going like, uh, we call it like, level 1, level 2, level 3, when it comes to metagaming, like going level 2, level 3 and metagaming yourself without a picking the right deck, because it's, it's, you know when you when you start to think that, okay, Azalea is the the, the clear best deck It has shown up in all the past results that's the deck to play, you're like, okay, well I'm going to play the deck to beat Azalea, because everybody's going to be able to go through that process, and then you think about it, and the deck that you have to beat Azalea is overwhelmingly good into it, and you're like, well, pe- a lot of people are going to pick this deck, and I have another deck that stomps this counter Azalea deck, and has an okay matchup into Azalea and you pick that and you show up and it's a 90% Azalea meta, which won't happen. But for example, then you've just sort of metagamed yourself out of picking the correct deck. And that yeah. happens a lot. Anyway, Hayden, there's a lot Ooh, more like... Go ahead.
1: Can we touch on that quickly? Can we yeah, quick, yeah. because this is something I wanted to ask you a question actually? We've we've always talked about this in our testing. We always say don't outlevel yourself or mm-hmm. don't outplay yourself when we when it comes to our testing and deck selection. And one of the things we've talked about all the time is that Like Brennan said, level 0, level 1, level 2, for instance, we often think that level 1 or like level 1 adjacent is the correct way to play. So either target the deck that targets the deck to play or just play the best deck or go adjacent and play something that is a little bit, different to what players might expect, attacks the meter in a slightly different way. So you still have a good matchup into level zero, but you're not quite playing a level one deck that people also maybe know how to beat or target. Mm -hmm. Do you think we might be moving a bit beyond just level zero and level one being the majority? And we might start to move towards a level one, a level two because of, you know, just how how teams are evolving, how players are evolving, how the game is, is developing and evolving, and the increased pool. Do you think we might start to see the shift as we move on?
0: So it's possible, but I definitely don't think we are there yet. Like, I'm not saying that we couldn't show up to Baltimore and it looks like a, a sort of metagame where people have done that and you, where you would have benefited from going to that level two, as we would say. But I think up until now, sort of our mantra, and this is what we learned from making mistakes, is that it's simpler than you think. Like, usually the metagame tends to... At major Flesh and Blood tournaments be simpler than you think. Like it, it, it doesn't end up at that level two, level three where people are playing, you know, the counter deck is more popular than the quote unquote deck. It, it just hasn't happened like that so far. I do think that as the game matures and as more teams, more sophisticated testing groups are really working towards trying to win these tournaments, that yes, like it is something you're going to need to consider because playing the deck seems like, at least in a game like Flesh and Blood, it gets more and more dangerous as teams like that start to crop up, right? Because, you know, they theoretically show up to the tournament with you know something that has a very good matchup into that. Whatever they think is going to be the mm-hmm. most popular deck, the the teams that have worked and put in the time and the testing will show up with something that they think can really beat that deck, whether it's a a mirror deck that has has tech and that tech gives it a lot of advantage, or they're playing some mm-hmm. other hero. Um so yeah. it's it's possible, but I, I don't think we're there yet.
1: Okay. I, I think an example, the latest example we have is Worlds. Mm-hmm. And I'll use Blitz as an example because I think that was like a, a new format. People had this kind of understanding of Iceendar being the level zero, <clears throat> and then Prism was seen as level one. And I think that's what we ended up getting with the level zero and level one. So I do agree with you that we haven't seen it happen yet. I do wonder if you know, because as an example, I think level zero would have been Icelander, Level one was was Prism, and then level two was you know the the aggro deck that took advantage of it, for instance. And we didn't we didn't really see that happen. We more saw Iceendar Prism. So yeah, I'm really interested to see if we do move beyond that.
0: Blitz, Blitz was really a really interesting one because of the significant lack of results, lack of like professional sort of prior experience, and I guess testing with these decks. Like I, I mean, Worlds was particularly interesting to me because I, of course, because I was in your testing group, agreed that I thought Iceland was the best deck, but we saw a significantly underrepresented portion of aggro like i thought there was going to be a lot more aggro um and then prism showed up and i thought that yeah i mean because i thought that aggro was going to actually be uh, as represented or slightly underrepresented from icelander that prism was a really bad pick but it didn't turn out that way and um, (laughs) yeah i'm going to i'm definitely going to keep my eye on blitz at the next world championship to sort of see how that metagame shakes out because i was i was I was not surprised at all by the classic instruction representation at world championships, but at blitz, oh, blitz, yeah, at blitz, at least not on the aggregate either. But at blitz, at the top tables, not what I expected at all.
1: It provides a bit of a yeah, it provides a bit of a dichotomy, I think, split format events because of particularly something like blitz at worlds where mm-hmm. those rounds are being played yep you know a lot of people going and be like ah oh, you know do I play a deck that I just I take I roll the dice and I play the deck that you know I think I can 5 with if I get the right pairings because I'm probably going to need to do that to top eight award championships or you know if I'm at the tail end of an event do I just want to be playing the deck that's going to get me a 4-1 do I just play Icelander mm-hmm. you know for instance and and so it was a, di- a bit of a dichotomy for players as well I think ultimately that might be a bit of a um, a fallacy it yep. might just be <laughs> Play the, just play the best deck, right? Just play the deck you think is the best positioned. Don't try and metagame where you're going to be round-wise because you never know what's going to happen. Um, you don't know what other players who have done the same thing or where players will sit. One thing I do want to kind of just point out is that I think we saw... The other thing we haven't touched on is that players might have the level 0 deck, but they might turn it into a level sort of 1.5, level 2 deck. And what I mean by that is they might have this, the concept of the most powerful deck. Let's say it's something like... Uh, Briar, in, in a format like Leal, you know, it's like okay, maybe Briar is just the best deck. Mm-hmm. Some people might turn that, and this is what we tried to do. I would say in this format, we tried to turn it into like the 1.5. Okay, let's find the Briar deck that is good into the mirror and also plays well into the decks that are trying to beat it. You know, and that is kind of trying to turn it into the 1.5. And I think we've seen people do this with Aggro decks in the past. They, you know, oh, katsu's the Aggro deck player. Well, here's my mid range, more control Katsu deck that's good into the mirror and into the decks that are targeting it. So there is ways to do that, and I think. You know we might we might see people do this at this format maybe it's like hey here's the ultimate deck with the target on spec and all of a sudden this pure like just turbo ultim deck with on hits comes out or something like you know as an example who knows but it could be I, i'm not going to see controllers a for instance i don't think we're going to see that but, yeah, yeah
0: it, i mean uh the the one i think that proto baltimore or sorry proto to is a good example but i remember when i went to the calling indianapolis like starvo was absolutely the level zero deck it was just overwhelming and powerful just the best deck um, but then a lot of Star Wars showed up with Expose the Elements which me as a Prism mm-hmm. player it's it was on my radar but I didn't expect it to be as represented as it was and because of that I had to play like you have to play around it constantly because you don't know if it's in your opponent's deck and something like Swiss. Um, and it just made me change the way I was playing in order to like, you know, there was no freaking way I was pitching an energy potion. Let's just say that. Um, but it was, yeah. So Starvo showed up the best deck, but then it came in with a, a few cards as a, as a way to tech against against something like a Prism and try to blow up their fantastical footsteps. Um, anyway, let's talk about Baltimore specifically. Um, I just want to touch on first, I just want to touch on results because I think that this is the greatest way to prime. So if you're of the metagame um, and the most consistent way. Like we can all sort of theorize what we think the best deck is, but I'm, I'll promise you the longer you have that conversation, the more your answer is probably going to change as you keep going level one, level two, level zero, which is a natural process of doing that. But one thing that doesn't change is past results. So right now, what I would be looking at is um, the battle hardened results here in the United States. Um, those top eights even though they were very diverse things like the azalea deck being the deck that won um, it is something to consider like you need to incorporate that into your process understand that deck and figure out if it's the top deck of its respective archetype and make sure you have something that's going to be good into it and i think that if you look at the specific list as well um, when you're looking back at past tournament results as a way to sort of try to predict a metagame you can actually look directly at the list because a lot of people are going to even though it's a pro tour and i know that you and i have been talking about how these pro tours are leveling up how there's teams that are getting more sophisticated and working harder there's still going to be a lot of people that show up to the pro tour and just net deck and they're going to net deck one of the top performing lists that mm-hmm. are in some of these tournaments so you can these are great gauntlet lists i think they're actually better gauntlet lists than you going out and trying to build the best Azalea deck you can
1: Yeah, I, I mean, they're going to be iterations always. People will always iterate on things, I think, to a degree because they will they will test and there might be a little bit of refining, but not everyone's deck builders, right? Not everyone is a deck builder who is out there trying to build the next great thing or take the kind of base idea and completely completely just, you know, turn it into something else. Look at Iceland. Icelanders look very much the same since US Nationals. that look the same at, at Worlds. Uh, it's the same throughout, you know, even up to Outsiders. So you will definitely see that. Mm-hmm. One, I guess, that... I kind of you talk about looking at win rates, right? Mm-hmm. Or I guess results. Sorry, you didn't say win rates. You look at results. There's not a lot of results for before Baltimore. Like we have, we have a couple of regional events, like we talked about, and then we have a battle-hardened in Richmond coming up uh, this weekend, and then it's the Pro Tour. So there's not a lot of results to look at. So I think the only things people can really base it on is what is what have we seen in in one to two events, and what is the overwhelming kind of discourse. I, I honestly think that's what people... Uh, one thing I could say is people might go to Teleshar and look at some of the Teleshar data, mm. which, you know, there is big sample sizes there. And if you look at that, you can look at most played decks. I mean, is up there as one of the most played decks. But, I mean, hey, look at win rates on, on Teleshar right now. Dromai, Ultim, Briar, Lexi have the, the best win rates on, on Talashar right now through the last few weeks.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's interesting because I don't think... You know, Telesha was at least... Uh, Even when we were testing for Worlds, I think that the data from that was not something we're willing to incorporate, but it was also a much more settled metagame at that point, Mm -hmm. right? Like we Mm -hmm. had much better much better data to look at. So it is potentially something to incorporate. And yeah, you're right. When you do lack like a sort of copious amount of results to look back on, you maybe just have that one or two sort of significant events. Um, Mm -hmm. Like you are going to have to use a lot of... I don't know, bro. Science metagaming, You and your team being like, okay, if if everybody's looking at these results and they're also, you know, in the similar testing process to us, where do we think they're going to land? And I think that that's that's where things get a bit kooky and it's a bit creative, but also I think it's where you can gain a lot of edge.
1: But you do have some info. So a good example of this, right, is okay. Azalea is clearly powerful. It is uh, it has put up results, right? We sort of put up the result in the brawl was an all Lexi final. Had that event not happened and had we had no Richmond, say that weekend was actually just the pro tour, players are sitting there going, wow, okay, we've got Azalea. We think it's really powerful. How many other teams or players have found this? And you wouldn't know, right? Like mm-hmm. how many people going to that brawl, for instance, knew how many people knew how good like uh, um, Azalea was, for instance. But we we do have that info. We do have some semblance that, yes, Azalea is a real meta player and it isn't an unknown quantity coming into Baltimore, whereas it could have been had Baltimore been earlier or we not had these sort of... these. Uh, these precursor events. So there is there is some information to go on, and that is when it starts to get interesting because now we know that players know about this. Now, there might be other decks out there that teams are going to find and think are really powerful, and then they've got to make that decision. Mm-hmm. Do people know about this? Have people found this? Hey, let's just say there's actually a, a crazy good cartoon deck out there. Have people found this? I mean, one for me is like Ultim. Yep. Ultim, from my testing, probably still the best deck, if not you know at least one of the top three decks right now. Are people finding the same thing in their testing? Because I think that Ultim, I mean, spoiler alert, I think Ultim would be the most played at deck this, at this Pro Tour. But if other teams and players are finding completely different things to what I'm finding, or I'm just wrong, then, you know, that, that's not going to be the case, and my metagame analysis is going to be out the window.
0: Yeah, so I actually wanted to sort of transition into sort of hard information that we believe is true, that we would utilize if we were attending yes. and competing in Pro Tour Baltimore. And what I'm going to lead off with is... I was going to ask what you thought the best deck was. Uh, so, if we talk about ultim specifically, what version of ultim do you think is the best deck? And like, what should we be preparing for? And if this is going to be the most played deck?
1: So, I I don't know if that's the first question I'd be asking in terms of what version of ultim. I, I agree, it's going to be important. I think first of all, people will be asking like, is is ultim? So you, the question you asked, what is the best deck in the format? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, from my personal experience in testing, it is azalea it is ultim and it is still iceland i think those are the three most powerful decks whether i guess maybe powerful and best might be a a slight deviation between the two and then i think the fourth one is um is dromai i think those are the decks that have they they have great game plans they have great ways to deal with potential outliers in the meta and decks that come up so i guess that's for players to work out okay these are the are you finding the same thing Mm -hmm. when it comes to let's talk a bit more about ultim like you said What are people going to come up with well if they're trying to target azalea and uh they think you know they need to target the mirror well it's probably going to look something a bit more mid-range-ish i would say it's not going to it's going to look like something that can have defense reactions for azalea they're also good in the mirror it's going to look like something that is you know it's not going to be super quick it's not having to necessarily you know beat down briars before they can just recursion loop things like channel mount heroic and lots of threats um but, you know, Ultim is going to be on... Uh, sorry, Iceland is going to be in their mind as well. What is my plan for Icelanders? So they're not going to look, I guess, purely maybe fatigue, but they're probably going to... Maybe if they are, they're going to try and fit the Warhorn package in. I think players might default to... Okay, first of all, can I fatigue Azalea? That's going to be the first question people ask. Like, Can I fatigue Azalea with a super defensive Ultim deck? My kind of takeaway is that you you... you can't it's consistently it's really difficult so is that the plan ultimate players want to be on i'm not quite sure they might want to be on more of a kind of hybrid plan where they have access to defense reactions but can kill and pressure azalea and i think that's better in the mirror as well so i think that's probably what players will find they'll find that some sort of you know it's not this kind of all um three card tens and it's not all mm-hmm. just defense but somewhere in between is what people are going to find is probably what we'll see at the pro tour
0: mm-hmm. so I think it's part of our thesis that in a lot of metas, there is one premier aggro deck and there's one premier linear mm-hmm. deck, right? And if, you, if you're looking at a series of decks that fit that archetype, um, there's usually not an excuse or not a reason to play the second best linear deck. <laughs> so do you think that Azalea is replacing the previous aggro decks of the past format being both Briar and Fi in, in sort of filling
1: that archetypical role in Pro Tour Baltimore? yes but also no because because it's not it's not one of those types of decks it's it's a bit more um dynamic it has this disruption package it has a a slightly different spread of matchups it is a deck that completely takes the legs away from aggro decks which is not something we've seen from other i think more linear decks in the past you know i would look at things like I mean, maybe Chain is actually a similar example, but it doesn't have quite the same level of disruption, right? So yes and no, but I do think it is going to, you know, where players might have been, Briar players or Fire players or maybe Council is even something they're looking at. I think Azalea will be like <clears throat> first choice amongst those players on the aggregate, mm-hmm. and I think that will be like the, the the linear adequacy because it just has some crazy powerful turns. It has access to disruption. It has access to dominate um, and evasion. So yeah, I think it's probably that is fits into that archetype. And then the kind of... The deck that is the you know I guess the deck to maybe play into that, or the deck that is just the solidly most like best deck in the format is is ultim. That's like that's why I think those are the two contenders when it comes to Baltimore. I think those will be. I honestly think that almost every group and player will have those top two decks or those two decks at the top of their
0: list. Mm -hmm. All right, so. Uh, can you sort of break it? So if we take the four best decks, right? we take Icelander, Old Him, Azalea, and Jermai. How do you mm. think that that, between those four, how do you think the matchup spread goes? And do you think that any is particularly more favored into a meta that is comprised of mainly those four heroes? Like what hero do you think would succeed the most if yeah. those are the fourth, fourth most played decks of the tournament?
1: So I think it's important to say that this is this is still speculation. This is coming from my testing and what I found this is not <clears throat> i think there's another deck in there which we can talk about soon but i think these are probably the decks that people will gravitate towards they have the most power involved with them um and i i think this is why people pick them up the fifth is briar which we can talk about a little bit as well but um so within that i think ultima is the deck that doesn't really have bad matchups and that's super appealing uh you know i don't think the droma matchup is bad i don't think the icelander matchup is necessarily bad it really comes down to what game plan you're going to play and what game plan the iceland is going to play um i don't think that you know if i think if you've got the right deck build i think you you're definitely favored into azalea so ultim kind of stands out as the deck that has a good standing in those four you know it doesn't have amazing matchups into any of those those decks i think uh if you tweak it and tune it you can you can pick and choose which ones mm-hmm. maybe you have a bit matchup into I'd say then if you look at something like Dromai, I think Dromai has a good matchup against Azalea. That's been kind of my understanding. I know I've heard some players talk about particular lists, you know, playing things like Rabble, playing things that can go a little bit wider to deal with, with Dromai. I think Dromai players can adapt fairly easily and still have a pretty good matchup there. Um, and, you know, your Icelander matchup, traditionally really, really good. Your ultimate matchup, that's going to be the question for you. You know, like, can you find a way to beat ultimate And is it really going to depend on the game plans they come with? I think the answer is yes. And I think mm. that's all... From my, players in my So th- those are two in particular I think are interesting.
0: So the hard thing about old him, and so let me just bring it back to some of one of the foundational things I think about when I'm picking a deck for the Pro Tour is like I I do think you need to target those what you think the top three or top four most most representative decks are. But also I prefer to have a deck that is also good against random decks (laughs) against bad decks, like a deck that is fundamentally powerful and maybe even fundamentally more powerful than a normal deck or a normal hero in flesh and blood. And I think that Icelander was that at worlds. Um, Like, I think it really fit that role. Like it was just not going to drop a game against some random deck Um, because that happens at the pro tour. You are going to face like at a pro tour, even though it's one of the highest level events in flesh and blood, I think that this will, you know, as we talk about this, you know, players maturing and these tournaments maturing, maybe it will happen less and less, but it does happen that you are going to face things that you're not expecting. People bring decks that are maybe not the best, and even if they are just different, um, it sucks to just kind of have a deck that's so narrow that it can only target the top three decks. When I look at something like Him, if it can beat the top three decks, Oldham is a deck, in my opinion, that is particularly good against random decks random. because it is yep. just so fundamentally powerful. <laughs> so tell me why would I not play Ultimate, Pro Tour, or Baltimore?
1: So firstly, I think all four of those decks have what you just said, a pretty good into random. Maybe Dromai is the one that is the, the weakest of those four, but it's still very powerful linear game playing can be enacted by it. Uh, I, I think that's the question though. Why should I not play Ultimate, Baltimore? I think it's going to be a question that a lot of players, teams, whoever, have to answer. Because I think that is a very pressing question. It might be that the answer is, I just am not experience stuff with Ultim. I'm going to lose Mirrors. Mm-hmm. It could True. be that. It's not the That's style of reason. deck I want to play. It's good yeah, reason. Yeah, right. I think it is too. Uh, there's, it's just not, it's not the style of deck I want to play. It is not the hero I want to play. Th- those are going to be an answer for a lot of people. <laughs> is that the right answer? I mean, it, might, it may be. But I think if, the, if you know you, you're someone who will just play the best deck, you'll pick up and learn then that's going to be a really tough question to answer. And and that is what teams are trying to figure out. Like, what is my reason to not play Ultim? I think your reason to not play Ultim is going to be, I think I have a deck that can beat it. Mm-hmm. I think I have a deck that can beat it and have a good matchup to Azalea, or vice versa, I can beat Azalea and have a good, a reasonable matchup to Ultim. I think those are going to be the two questions because, I again, I come back to, I think those are going to be the two most played decks. And again, this meta could iterate and information could come to light and things could could sort of move over the next couple of weeks. But I think that's the question.
0: Talk to me about um, talk to me about Briar. You mentioned that as maybe being mm. you mentioned. I mean, you mentioned it at all, so maybe it's like a fifth deck or an off better pick. Uh, talk to me about Briar. Where what role it potentially fills? Because if I look <laughs> at something like Briar, and I guess Fire to an extent, but I would maybe put Briar above Fire right now. Uh, Briar seems like a deck that is probably kind of bad into Azalea. What do you think?
1: So I wouldn't touch Fire. <laughs> First of all, I think Katsu is. The better ninja at this point and i actually think katsu is probably there's a couple of titles i want to give some decks once we get to the end of the pod um you know you talked about dark horse and mm-hmm. deck to beat things like that i've got i've got some decks i want to throw out there for each of those kind of titles but briar i do think is probably somewhere around that fifth deck and the reason for that is that it's a deck we've seen for a while it is inherently powerful it has rosetta thorn uh, which is just one of the best weapons in the game still still standing uh and i actually think it's one of the Decks that can defend best. So Mm -hmm. you can actually build this in a way to defend really well. You can utilize that embodiment of earth really well, and you can chip damage down. And you can play kind of hybrid game plans between. You don't even have to play Briar as this full, you know, like a better term, balls the wall aggro deck. You can play it as more of a a mid range, more of a value orientated deck. And there's a lot of options for Briar now. I think it's got some upgrades. I think, you know, give and take is a really interesting card. Um, So there are ways to to play to play Briar that we maybe haven't seen as much of previously. I know there was uh, there was a player in the the Goliathgon that that's just gone by that played a this like mid range defensive kind of Briar, and we saw it actually at the Brawl event post Outsiders. So and we saw it in the Dynasty meter as well. But the reason I think that okay, so you asked is it is it just bad into Azalea? I think I think no. I think else it's actually not. My my testing I think Briar's been a lot better than expected. Um, I think it's something that I would lean towards because I personally like Room blades as a style that I quite like to play. So maybe I'm a little bit biased, but I would try and I have been trying to make it work. And I think there is a lot there with Briar. I think you have a good ultimate matchup, which is something that is really high on my priority list. Um, it's interesting because I know a lot of people play Briar and go, oh, you know, the ultimate matchup is tough. I have traditionally found the ultimate matchup to be good i really like playing into ultims as briar i think you've even got more tools than you had before uh, and you can always have you have access to so many different ways to make sure that fatigue is not 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 an option Mm -hmm. um, which is sort of really great to see and i mean the one that i'd be most worried about is icelander but if i feel that briar gives me a good opportunity to block well into azalea to have this kind of cyber package for azalea and default i think my ultimate matchup is good i found a deck that can play into the top two decks now is is what i'm giving is the answer true is that that correct? Is is what I'm finding with Briar in my testing the same thing that other people are going to find? Are they going to feel comfortable enough with the ultimate matchup? Do they feel that the package is good enough for Azalea? Ultimately, I don't know, but I think that Briar is there as a potentially really, really strong option, and to be honest, is one of the top decks I'd be looking at if I was going to Baltimore. Mm-hmm. It is what has been in my testing for, for a, a little bit now.
0: If you could um, pick a dark horse for the meta Pro to a Baltimore, what would it be?
1: Yeah, let, let me give you these. So I think, let's just, let me go through them, Brendan, because I think Ultim is the, the most well-rounded. I think Azalea is the, a deck, it's the deck to beat. It's the deck with a target on its back. It's something like Fire or Briar from previous meters. I think it is arguably the, like, the incumbent It's the deck coming through before Azalea as the, the the deck from the last format, like you talked about, the World Championship winning deck. Um, very, very powerful. But the question mark is Ranger-Azalea matchup, right? And then Briar, I think, is the off-meta attacker like we just talked about. I think Dromai is a bit of a project. If you can fix that, that Ultimate matchup, you have a deck that's potentially really good into the field. Um, and I know some people believe that and feel that, that ultimate is a good matchup. So maybe it is a real option for them. Uh, Lexi, I think, might be maybe the Dark Horse. It's Lexi or it's an Assassin. I think those are the Dark Horses. Lexi, I think, might people might see as a potential answer to Azalea. Their problem is going to be ultim, But then Azuri, Arachne. is this, this is the one I see as the Dark Horse, that if someone figures this out, if someone finds this deck, and they feel it can be good into ultims and into Azalea. I think they found the deck. I think they found the deck. Jerome might be their problem, but I think they found potentially a deck that could crack the meta.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I guess just let's let's sort of tie it up. Then, what do you? What is your? We already talked about it a little bit, I know, but give me your sort of concise expected meta breakdown for Pro Tour Baltimore.
1: Mm, okay, I can give you what I think right now. Yeah, of Again, course, of
0: course, it's not a fact
1: caveat might change next week caveat yeah. might change next week i think Ultim's gonna be the most played deck i think azalea is going to be shortly behind as just the most powerful linear deck people are going to default to i then then it gets tough i think dromai might be the third most played deck we saw it really show up at chicago in the brawl as a potential way to to target the meta i think people are going to refine their game plans into both azaleas and ultim's and I think people will feel confident that they can have a decent matchup into Ultim or if they find it and feel good into both Icelander and uh, Azalea. I think Icelander as a powerful deck is still going to be in that top five, but I could really see it dropping down the sort of the picking order. Um, and then, so I think those, those kind of three are going to be the ones that have, you know, overwhelmingly sort of over 10%. You know, they're going to be in the, the high teens of sort of representation, mid to high teens of representation. Then I think we're going to see quite a diverse meta after that with Icelander, Briar, uh, Katsu. I think we're going to see Bravo. I think those are the next we're going to see as well. Um I'm trying to think if there's anything else from our testing that's kind of popped up. Is, I think we're going to see some assassins. But I, I think we will see probably the most diverse meta game we've seen of a Pro Tour so mm-hmm. far. And to be honest, that's not hard because Starvo, Prism, Chain, really dominated PT1 and then PT2 is really dominated by Briar. Prism, Briar, and Fire. Um, and yeah, so I don't think it's particularly hard. So
0: I have to ask you a question because you've played a specific hero that hasn't been mentioned yet. It's 66% of your high-level pro events. Where do you think
1: that one lands? Sorry, can you... Sorry, you have to repeat the question for me.
0: <laughs> you've played a specific hero at 66% of your major... your, your I don't know if what... The pro the pro tour level events. Pro right. tour level. What are they tier... Are they tier four or tier one? Tier...
1: T 4, yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. What about Kano and why is it not not on your radar
1: on this meta? So, it's an interesting one. I think Kano is a potential. I think people will will bring it. Um, It's actually might be in, it could be in a better position. My problem with Kano is that if the meta is this wide Mm -hmm. and yes, people might be dropping Arcane Barrier, but I think a card that is really going to show up in force is a card like Oasis Respite because it's really good into, you know, people are going to use it for Azalea because it's not a card that defends, it gets around Dominate, but also it's a card that they can put into their deck because of the wide nature of the meta. So it's like, okay, well, you know, I could be playing unmovable here. Is Oasis Respite a better option for me and my deck configuration because it also gives me, you know, potential game into Icelander or Kano um, into Aggro decks because it's not just this defend for eight, it's a defend for four that can, or defend for five net potentially that can be utilized a bit better. So... I think that card will be on the rise. I think we'll probably see the most copies of Oasis Respite played in any pro event we've seen so far at this event. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I think that's, that's one knock against Kano. And the other is, I just think there's more sort of linear powerful options right now, I think, than potentially playing Kano. It would still be on my radar, of course, because it's Kano and, you know, (laughs) it will always be on, on my radar, but, yeah, and then the Azalea matchup with things like inertia and stuff like the, mm, the matchup is yeah. not as clean as I'd want to be. I like the fire matchup. I much prefer playing the fire matchup, for instance, at Worlds as opposed to something like Azalea when it comes to the the linear deck, the aggro deck,
0: for instance. Yeah, it's inertia in particular, isn't it? Because Azalea does and secret destroy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, all of that arsenal disruption. Not yeah, not good. Not good. I mean uh yeah i guess i'll touch on it slightly but i think we even mentioned the last podcast which kind of shows how the the affinity for kano but there is a dichotomy between there is a a a really interesting dichotomy for picking kano in terms of the metagames Mm -hmm. that's good into it's good in the extremes of the metagame um so it's good into a metagame that is particularly solved that kano's good into right that he can exploit but is bad into a meta that is solved that it can't exploit so i think proto proto number two briar fiesta that's a bad one for Kano. It's also good into very unsolved metas, very diverse metas where people are likely to cut arcane barrier, to cut things like West Spite. But, you know, at the same time, if the meta is so diverse, and you still think the cards are like Oasis of will come up, and you still think that people are going to be packing arc- enough Arcane Barrier because Icelander is a prevalent deck, then you're looking at bringing Kano to a wide meta that has tech cards against you, and Kano's actually not good. He's not f- actually fundamentally good into wide meta. He's not good against every single deck. It's pretty tough. So, it's like, it's, it's only good at the extreme ends of the spectrum and in certain cases. And we and seem like, yeah, it seems like we're falling out of those, sort of those, uh, those situations right now so it doesn't look like the best deck but again um it all depends because you know you know last week it's like you start cooking with some Kano and dalishar who knows where you're going to go after that it's, quite,
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a, it's oh, kind of a no. whole... slip slippery yeah. slope
0: slippery slope all right hey. No. um oh go ahead
1: We're gonna say something. i was just gonna say i i think the yeah i mean i think the last thing is i wanted to kind of talk about is the deck mm-hmm. like what is the what is the choice and I think we'll we'll do a little segment the week of the Pro Tour of like what deck Yep. I think we'd each lock in for the event and what we'll be playing this weekend and why, and we'll, we'll do a little bit of a discussion based on this. But this is more about a peak behind the curtain of you know testing process and processes coming to these decks. So where I'm at in my process right now is that I'm narrowed down to three what I would call choices for myself. One, I talked about Briar. I think Briar is in a, a better spot. It's a deck that I'm familiar with. It's one that through the process of things we just talked about is a deck that I would come to. The second is definitely um, Icelander. I think Icelander is still powerful. I think if you can work out your your Azalea matchup, if you can fix that somehow, if you can come up with a game plan from your sideboard, you're in a good position, right? And then the third is Dromai. This is one I haven't played with as much, but have tested with, I think, in theory, is in a really good spot in this meta. And I think if I wanted to kind of pivot, hard pivot, and just try and spend the rest of my time targeting what I expected the metagame to be, I would probably spend a lot of time on Dromine. to be honest. I'd spend a lot of time on the Dromine ultimate Ultim matchup. I would try it. so many different things. I would be resorting to players I know have this information. Um, and then lastly, so I'll talk more about these decks, I guess maybe next week or the week after, as testing kind of evolves. Those are the decks that are kind of sitting on the shelf. But then lastly, the, the deck I just wanted to kind of briefly touch on, nothing to do with it, something I think I would play, but Katsu. Katsu is such a weird spot. All these cards came out, right, Brendan? They mm-hmm. look really powerful. It looks like it has all these tools to deal with fatigue. Now it has things like, you know, Dojo and yep. access to Vambrace and stuff for the ultimate matchup. And feels pretty powerful when I play it. It feels, you know, like it's in a good spot. But there's something about the consistency that just isn't there. Yep. And I wonder, I think either people are going to show up with it and have a really bad time or well, there's going to be a few people that show up with it and have cracked the list and have a really good time with Katsu and like two copies get into top eight. And I, I don't know which way it's going to go. So that's the, that's the, that's the last thing I want to draw. How Katsu.
0: is Katsu into Azalea? Because I think one of the most powerful things you've been doing with Katsu is Flick Flack and that card like, is particularly bad against uh, something like a go Tall Azalea. So is, is Katsu good against Azalea or can it can it hold its ground?
1: Well, I don't know. That's the thing. I think there probably is a version of... Katsu is so wide yeah, on what it can do. It's right. one of those <laughs> decks eh, where it's going to be built in so control. many ways, yeah. You know, you could be playing six unmovables in you you know, plus Oasis and in all, all stuff that stuff. Exactly. You know, peace of mind and my deck and stuff. So I don't I don't know. But I, I think card two is, is really, really interesting. I mean, the ultimate problem is going to be if you play something like that, how do you deal with ultim? So, yeah, just thought I'd touch on that one as the last kind of point. But I, I hope this process is, you know, I guess like sort of pairing into this process has been interesting with, I know, at least myself, definitely been going through it. It's not looked as... As it normally would for pro tour, but I don't think this changes for players. You know, it is this process of moving through the phases of discovery, refining, metagame analysis, choosing decks is a really sometimes it's a it's like a mix between an art and a science. You know, you're trying to science it up a little bit, work out what the metagame is going to be, but the art of it is what feels good. You know, you can't you can't put numbers and you can't put um statistics to everything. So things come down to feel a lot of the time in flesh and blood because ultimately then there's a you have to play the deck. Someone could show you this game plan and be like, hey, look at this game plan. It beats X deck every time. I'll show you the game plan. You go and play it. doesn't mean you're going to be able to do it, right? doesn't mean you're, the way you play or the way you feel and intuit the game's going to be the same. So um, choosing a deck, this kind of process is a mix between an art and a science. And I think it's it's really interesting. Players have two weeks left to kind of go through this now. And um, I really hope that, hope you get a chance to talk to some players at the event, Brendan, and gather some of these stories because I think it'd be really interesting on in the podcast the week after if you can regale some of the players' sort of preparation stories and how they went through this process so we can kind of refer back to what we've talked about today.
0: Yeah, I mean, to tie it all up, just focus on the fundamentals. That's
1: all you uh,
0: <laughs> <I love laughs> all right. Process. Well, there's a YouTube version if you're listening to this on a pod platform at youtube.com slash Arsenal Pass. We're on Twitter. I'm at BrendanAPG. Hayden is at Fian underscore Dale. Um, and finally, we have a Patreon. We recently put up an Azalea deck deck. If you're looking at you like, hey, That's the best deck. What does it look like? Well, Brody Spurlock did a deck tech with us and has a deck tech guide, cyborg guide, everything you need to pick it up and be successful up in the Arsenal Pass. Patreon, check out limited time only, which recently dropped as well. And Hayden, anything else to say before we close out?
1: Not at all. Have a good week in Flesh and Blood All. See y'all next week.